marketing, explosive growth, and revolutionary secrets that can catapult your business to new heights. You're now listening to the Underground Marketer Podcast with your host, Tudor Dumitrescu. The one podcast devoted to showing new businesses how to market themselves for high growth. Welcome to the Underground Marketer. This is the place where we deliver the real truth about business and marketing, and we explore big ideas that can help new businesses thrive and grow into big ones. I'm your host, Tudor, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Oliver Duffy Lee, founder of Launchpad Academy, aimed at helping founders start and scale creative agencies, and also marketing director at Word Products LTD. So, Oli, I'm glad to have you here. Welcome. Hey, Tudor. Thanks so much. It's really, really cool to be on your show. That's awesome. All right. So, I mean, the best thing is to get into it. If you tell us a bit about your story and how you got into actually launching this business, the Launchpad Academy, give us a bit about your history, how you developed and what made you start it. Cool, man. Well, listen, uh, I tell you one thing I definitely didn't do. I definitely didn't go into life thinking I'm going to become a marketer. I don't even really still consider myself a marketer, but I have spent the last 10 years mm-hmm. and my whole career so far in marketing. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that's a story that a lot of people in marketing have, but I went to uni, studied history and Spanish. I'm not sure what you studied too, or probably something much more useful. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, you come out of uni with a degree in history and Spanish and uh, you can't really do much. Obviously you could speak a bit of Spanish, which was nice, but had nothing really I wanted to do and managed to get a job as a copywriter because Mm -hmm. one thing you do learn to do with a history degree is write. They make you write Mm -hmm. loads and loads and loads of stuff. So became a copywriter quickly. And I know that's a passion of yours, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Quickly, uh, quickly realized that my talents were not on the creative side, much more on the sales side. So became client manager, account manager, account director, and soon had my own uh, little pool of clients. And and I say little, it was actually quite big. We had we had Volvo in my pool. We had nice. Porsche, Grand Vision, really big clients, GSK, big clients. And uh, it became a point, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm sure you've probably had experiences like this before, but there's this funny moment in these mid-sized to big agencies where you've got these account directors that basically are, are bringing in a big majority of the agency's money through their clients. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, you kind of think, well, I'm not really sure why I'm doing this for you guys because I don't have a stake in the company. And frankly, if I left, it could be an interesting situation. So I um, had conversations about maybe taking ownership or having a stake or equity and nothing happened. So mm-hmm. um, I left and I was already mentoring a couple of uh, my agency friends. Nice. And I just basically thought, you know, instead of starting an agency from scratch right now, I did two things. I sort of went into partnership with my friends at World Products. They were building an agent. They wanted someone to build the agency side of their business. So mm-hmm. did that. And then we launched, well, we, I didn't know at the time it was Launchpad Academy, but I started doing proper training with uh, agencies instead of just a bit of mentoring. And about 12 to 18 months later, now we have the Launchpad Academy with you know 50 plus members. And it's a real thing. And it's, it's kind of hard to believe all this has happened recently, to be honest. 
Wow, that's that's awesome. So, I mean, it, it sounds like you've had, you've built quite a bit of experience before you took the jump to become an entrepreneur. So how was that moment for you when the, the guys at the, at the agency you were working for basically didn't want to make your partner or increase the pay or do some or share the benefits in some way? How was that moment for you? Was it hard in terms from a mindset point of view or was it like, I just have to do this and it's the next step and it's just the obvious thing to do? Yeah, it was really the obvious thing to do because being completely honest, all my cards on the table, this was this is probably the third proper business I've tried to launch in my life. Mm-hmm. The fourth business I've been involved with, the first one was fairly successful, but just fizzled out. So I had tried and failed a couple of times to get something going on my own while, you know, as a side hustle, you know, and Mm -hmm. this idea of running alongside, running a a business alongside this other job, which was very demanding, I clearly Mm -hmm. knew wasn't going to work. So this was third time. And it was very obvious to me that I had to quit in order to, in order to start this up. And I guess it felt scary, but actually it was more the fear of if I don't now, what's going to happen next? Because, you know, maybe mm-hmm. eventually I do get some equity or maybe eventually they do start paying me much more money. And then, you know, maybe I'll get comfortable. Maybe we'll have children and then maybe I'll never leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. felt that felt scarier, if I'm honest, at that stage, because it was the third time. And yeah, it wasn't it wasn't scary to take the leap at that point. So it was sort of fear of missing out on your future potential. If you stay, hundred percent, right? And and you mm-hmm. know, one for one for my wife and I, virtual lifestyle is very very important to us. We both work for ourselves. We both can work from anywhere. So yeah, that's that, awesome. That whole thing was um, in jeopardy if I didn't if I didn't quit at that point. You know, so it's um, it was a big risk. Um, obviously, it was a big risk to do it, but a big risk not to do it. And uh, yeah, it felt good. And by the way, who knows? Like we're only like 18 months in. Who knows what might happen? It might all end in tears, but things look at the moment pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like you are building a solid foundation. I think you mentioned 50 plus members. So that's that's very good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, the mm-hmm. membership um, the membership's growing amazingly well. I can't believe how big the market is. Tudor, if I, if I was to show you, um, my business partner and I, we have a a nice collection of all of our competitors, basically people mm-hmm. who on the, on the surface do exactly the same as us. It's a pretty long list, right? There's mm-hmm. like, there's like hundreds of, of people like us and we just find the market is massive still. There are so many agency owners that need help. So yeah, uh, I'm kind of amazed. That's one of the things that surprised me the most. It's one of the interesting things. I've been noticing this trend as well. So I would say from 2018 to today, there has been a massive explosion of marketing agencies. Yeah. I've been in this field for about nine, 10 years, maybe now. Initially also started as a copywriter, similar to you. Nice. And the thing is that, yeah, there has been this explosion of agencies and a lot of them are struggling to differentiate themselves from what I've noticed. Back when I started doing this kind of work and I went freelance, there wasn't anywhere near as much competition. Why do you think there's this uh, this new influx since 2018? I'm not exactly sure, but I think that the online lifestyle has been promoted a lot more. There's a lot more coaches and people who are selling courses about how people can make an income through the internet or online. 
And since agencies are relatively straightforward to open, I mean, it doesn't take a big capital, right? It's a creative business. You don't need to have a lot of assets. You can work from anywhere. I think that it attracts a lot of people. I think you're completely right. It's funny. It's a low startup cost. You can start up with basically a laptop. At least that's what people tell you. And that is in theory true. Yeah, it's low barriers for entry and probably those skills that people have, whether it's content creation or copywriting or design, can be done with with fairly low. Like you don't need lots of uh, moving parts, right? Absolutely. And I think that one thing that many people don't get, you know, they, they just look that it's a, uh, it's a low barrier to entry. But the thing is that I think that this business is a lot more difficult than a lot of other businesses that you can do, especially since... With creative businesses, your competition really is pretty much global. It's work that can be done from the distance um, and anybody can compete with you. The, the pool of competitors is much larger. So I look at people, for example, who are building local service businesses and they have a much easier time, especially online. You know, competition mm. is much lower. Mm. Much easier for them to target. Um high intent traffic through Google ads and things like that as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, you told me something that interested me a lot. So you mentioned that Launchpad Academy is not your first entrepreneurial venture. So I was wondering if you can tell us, or if you're, if you're happy to tell us a bit more about the other ventures that you tried beforehand. And basically, I think that listeners would be very interested to know basically what lessons you took from them why they didn't work out, if that was the case, and how you moved forward from that. Yeah, of course, my friend. So really, really nice timing to ask me that question because the first one I wanted to do was going to be a type of coaching business. Uh, so that kind of has happened. I mean, both of these weirdly now have kind of happened, right? So the first mm -hmm. thing was going to be some sort of coaching business. It was going to be more to do with life coaching, more sort of slanted towards communication. It's that classic mm -hmm. thing, right? Of like a 27 year old that wants to teach everyone how to live life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no experience, no real hard times to teach people about, you know, so it was very misguided, but I guess what was in there that I could see was this really strong desire to coach people and to work with people and try and help them mm -hmm. transform. Right. So that was nice. That completely failed. And actually both of these failed for the same reason. I'll tell you in a second. The second one was a more of an agency business. And that was more to do with basically content, script writing, presentation design. And that didn't work out simply because, well, both of them didn't work out because I started with the mindset of this is what I'm going to sell and this is how I'm going to sell it. And at no point in my mind did I ever think, who am I selling it to and what's their problem? So I had, I was building these weird little businesses around selling things, selling services or selling courses or selling something and had no, had spent no time at all thinking about the exact person, the very specific type of person that wanted my stuff and what problem they had that I was solving. Okay. And mm -hmm. so from what's happening now is um, I went into this, fell into Launchpad because I was already helping people. I was already helping agency owners to do this very specific thing, which is grow their business. And therefore the whole business, the whole academy started around, you know exactly who you're helping, you know exactly what problem they have. It turns out they have these, these agency owners have about 20 more problems, which are just as important that we now help them solve. But it started mm -hmm. with a very specific problem, which these people don't know how to find and win clients. And 
as much as simple as that sounds, the first two businesses I had, I had spent no time thinking about that. And it's very interesting what you said just a second ago. You said lots of agencies out there finding it hard to differentiate themselves. One of the big problems that agencies have when it comes to differentiating themselves is they make the mistake that I made in my first two ventures, which is they're thinking about what is the service they want to sell and how are they going to sell it? So what's the service and what's the marketing technique I'm going to use to sell it? Is it cold email? Is it cold DM? Is it LinkedIn DM? That's probably the question I get the most from um, struggling agency owners who, who just reach out to me. Should I do cold email? Should I do cold uh, DM? <laughs> Should I do cold LinkedIn outreach? So people are thinking about what they're going to sell and they're thinking about how they're going to sell it. They're not thinking about who's the very specific person they're going to help and what is the really unique problem that they have that no one else is serving for them. And I think if you switch, if you switch your mindset around, it seems very simple. You may, by the way, come out with the same answer. It's very possible you may come up with the same answer, but it's unlikely to be a service that you come out as the answer. It's much more likely to be a problem with a solution attached to it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've seen this problem not just with agencies, but with a lot of new entrepreneurs generally. In fact, we had an episode before which was titled something like Start from Who, Not From What. There you go. Yeah, um, nice. Which was, yeah, it was getting at a very similar idea to what you're talking about. And I agree that that's very important. I mean, it's very interesting how um, as a copywriter, you know, you, you learn that you have to focus on the client, but somehow when you try to do this for yourself, you always have the tendency <laughs> to think of what service and how am I going to reach out to them first. Do you have any tips to give people about a sort of process that they should go through when they're starting with who? So how should they go about finding a market that they would like to approach? I mean, there's a lot of ways to get to this. I mean, some people say, you know, you should start from something that's economically viable. Others say, think about the stuff that you know what to do and people who could be helped by it. So do you have any advice on that? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, there's a massive push in the agency world to find blue oceans, right? So mm-hmm. find uh, these niches which are just completely unserved by anyone ever. And there's so many issues with that. There's two big ones. One is that what ends up happening is there are these really talented agency owners that are serving a niche which they have no idea about and they don't care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, air conditioning, roofing, windows and doors, uh, skip hire. If you are genuinely passionate about skip hire, right, and you have spent a few years sort of understanding that industry, you might be a perfect ads person for a skip hire business. Mm -hmm. If you haven't, if you're a marketer and you have no interest in skip hire at all, I wouldn't bother because you're going to spend your life talking about skip hire. You're not going to be talking about ads. You're going to be talking about skip hire. So I think the first thing is when you put together a a list of choices for which niche, which uh, sector you want to work in, make sure that every single one on that list actually interests you. You don't have to be madly passionate about it, but make sure it at least interests you because let me be very clear, you're going to be spending your days immersed in that industry. So if it doesn't interest you on some level, you may as well go and be a lawyer or go and be an accountant Mm -hmm. or a librarian because it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Second thing that's a problem with this is that if you find a truly perfect blue ocean, so say you manage, you win, the, you win the niche game 
and you find this niche which is absolutely unserved, okay, then you're going to have a much bigger problem. And that problem is that you are going to be the pioneer that has to go into that sector and convince them that they need your service. Because mm-hmm. that, that sector has never been touched by your service. Let's imagine it's Facebook ads. And let's imagine uh, you're a, an ads agency and you've decided, let's go with the skip hire thing again. You're the mm-hmm. first ad agency ever in the skip hire industry. Well, you're the person that's going to have to convince every skip hire in business that ads can work for their business. And that is a much harder thing than to convince someone that you're, more, you're better than your competitor. So I think the first thing is don't worry too much about this blue ocean stuff. I understand it might be easier if it's less saturated, but it's not that important. Really, it's not that important. The second thing is make sure you are actually passionate about this thing. What we use for this, uh, we use an adaptation of the Ikigai exercise. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Yeah, um, yeah, I know it. It's, it's yeah. great. Yeah, exactly. So Ikigai trying to help you. It's a Japanese methodology trying to help you to find your true calling, your true meaning, right? Now, mm-hmm. that's a great place to start. After that, then yeah, you can do a bit of market research. You can look at, for example, look on LinkedIn, how many available second and third connections do you have in that particular sector? How many can you reach within uh, one or two connection requests in that sector? Could be a good place to start to see how big or how available that Mm -hmm. sector is. But only start doing market selection stuff once you have decided a list that you're actually passionate or interested in. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fantastic advice. I wanted to go back a bit to what you said about blue oceans. And that's very, very interesting because it's one of the, the things that I was also talking about recently. A lot of people that there's this idea being, that has been promoted that you have to go if you're starting a business after a blue ocean and that's how you're going to be successful. And I agree with you that that's not actually how you have the best chance, let's say, of being successful. The thing with Blue Oceans, I think that you're absolutely right about that. I mean, if you're the first there, if you're the pioneer, what people don't realize is that it's going to take a lot of money for Mm. you to make it work. I mean, if you go back to the days of, say, PCs, when PCs were first invented in the 70s, those companies, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars And by the 80s, you know, by the mid 80s, approximately 10 years after, PCs still didn't have mass adoption. So I think that a lot of people underestimate the effort and just the amount of capital that is required to truly conquer a blue ocean. Sure, the rewards, if you manage to do it, are great, but it's also exceedingly difficult. I like the idea of a pink ocean. You know, you want some competition, but not too much. I completely agree. Nothing scares me more than the blue ocean too, honestly. I, I, I'm terrified of them. I'm terrified of them. There's so, much, there's so much danger in the blue ocean, right? So first of all, let me tell you, our competitors are an infinite source of amazing ideas. So mm-hmm. when we are obsessed with our competitors in a really healthy way, we love watching our competitors. We love getting in their marketing funnels. We love being in their programs and just seeing what they're doing. That for me is such an under-leveraged advantage of being in a red-ish ocean, is you have infinite sources of amazing ideas when it comes to marketing and delivery and delighting clients, okay? A blue ocean, you've got none of that. You've also mm-hmm. got to do this whole convincing thing, which is true. And what, what I should say is, I'll be very clear, like my expertise very much is rooted in the agency industry. I would imagine that if you took an industry, for example, like the SaaS business, 
you wouldn't want a very red ocean, right? Because then you're going to be, you can only compete on features. You can't compete on personality or relationships. Mm -hmm. And then you're on a price down to the bottom. So, you know, a space like DRM, for example, I guess there's lots of arguments to say you want to find a pretty blue, blue ocean for that. But in our industry, what we're talking about in marketing and the agency world, honestly, run from the hills. If you see a blue ocean, if you actually find find one, run for the hills and look for something a little more pinkish, a little more reddish, because mm -hmm. it's just going to make your life so much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And I mean, I work with businesses with quite a bit. I, I work mainly in finance, in the finance niche, but I've also worked with coaches and with e-commerce businesses quite extensively. And I, I've seen this idea be true pretty much across the board. It's much safer if you go into a pink ocean mm -hmm. where there are already models that work and yeah. that you can look into, as you said, you can see what your competitors are doing and you can do it better than they do it. It's much safer. You know that it's going to work. Whereas if you go into a blue ocean and it's completely blue, then you don't have any idea. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. I would say this is well, just going back to something we were saying before on, um, on niches, right? And blue, this is related to the blue ocean thing, because one thing that I am shocked, uh, agency owners will come to me and by the way, just to be clear, my door is always open, right? So if you're an agency and you've got a question, please do knock on my door. I'm just relaying mm -hmm. questions that come to me uh, quite a lot. And one of the questions will be, uh, I can't decide between um, this, this niche and this niche. It might be like e-commerce businesses and it might be accountancy firms, for example. And the question I will ask, uh, they'll say, which one's best? And I'll say, well, when you've spoken to them, which one do you think has the most challenges that you can fix? And of course they haven't spoken to them, right? So mm -hmm. here's the thing, if you want, to know what's the best niche for you. And if you want to really know what their problems are, knock on their door and ask them what they need. And this is really, really simple. Just go find anyone on LinkedIn. Maybe if you find 10 people, you message them all and you say, look, I really, really value 10 minutes of your time just to ask you a few questions for market research. I will buy you a virtual coffee or I will donate 10 pounds to this charity as a, as a thank you or something like that. And at least, I promise you, at least one or two of them will come back to you and say yes. And then you've got mm -hmm. a great opportunity to actually do your own bit of market research and see what these people are struggling with. Unless you do that, you are only ever going to uncover about 15% of the truth. You can only find out about 15% of the truth about your niche or your market until you've spoken to these people. So that's the, the big piece that a lot of agencies miss when they're doing their niche selection. Yeah, and this really takes us into the idea that the knowledge that's already out there that you can find on Google, you can find on YouTube and so on, that's already dated knowledge. You know, if you want to create a business that's going to be successful, I truly believe that you need to uncover something that's not known by a lot of people. And that's where the truly valuable knowledge really exists. So I definitely sympathize a lot with this idea of yours. And it's a funny thing that... If you reach out to people and you just want to ask them some questions, a lot more of them are open. If Definitely. you reach out to them and you try to sell them something, <laughs> almost nobody is open. <laughs> 100% because when you, when you position someone, this is about status, right? When you position mm -hmm. someone as an expert and you want to learn from them, they feel that they have the status and they're more safe, they yep. feel more safe to say yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I think that that's very powerful. 
And um, I have a friend who runs uh, a business in um, he he does um, ser- he provides services for Amazon sellers, and he mm. has switched from the salesy approach to this uh, this approach of first starting a conversation, asking them questions, and it's a lot more effective for him. So yeah, I I definitely share the same uh, the same kind of views. So earlier in this discussion, you mentioned about competitors and how you religiously, let's say, keep track of them. Do you have any process that you use? I mean, how do you figure out everybody who is a competitor? How do you monitor the market? Well, we are both me and um, my business partner. We are both agency owners. So mm-hmm. we are at, we are literally both our target client and our we are the the sort of service provider at the same time. So we mm-hmm. we're constantly marketed to by our competitors. We're constantly in that in their funnels, and we just sort of dig dig around and we we do opt in and we do dig a bit deeper, and um, we do find out good stuff from those people. And I don't think I think that's that's kind of like when you are a geeky marketer you kind of buzz off that stuff, right? You kind of buzz off getting into someone's funnel, seeing what their email automation's like, seeing what their follow-up's like, seeing how omni-channel their marketing is. And um, mm-hmm. when you're into marketing, that's actually a really easy thing to do. So yeah, we do we do a lot of that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you search for ads? Do you search for them on Google based around certain keywords? Or do you just wait until they sort of contact you? Yeah. Well, for me, I'm definitely more of a waiter. My buddy Radu, he he is such a geeky marketer. I'm sure he won't he won't mind me saying that. That he probably does go searching for it. But yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it, we don't have to because we just wait. And it's such a saturated area, the sort of like agency coaching, agency consultant area that you just have to wait around and and you will get hit. And it's funny because something that we realize now is that all of the agency coaching programs, all of the agency consultants are using ads and marketing like that to find their clients. Very few of them that we've seen are teaching agencies themselves how to run their own ads for their own agency. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really know why that is at this stage. Mm -hmm. I think that part of the reason for that may be that it's more difficult to... I mean, it's much easier, for example, to get clients via ads or paid advertising for e-commerce businesses which sell a physical product, I've noticed. It's much more difficult to get clients for services. So, for example, when in my agency I do ads for an e-commerce client, we have a much easier time and the results are much easier to come about than when we work, say, with a coach. Mm. It takes a lot more effort to market a service from what I've seen via paid advertising than a product, it might may also have to do with the price, right? Because services typically tend to be towards the higher end in terms of price, whereas products, you know, they you have probably from around twenty to one hundred and fifty dollars most of the products. Yeah. So they sell much faster. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely part of it. I think at the moment what we're seeing this this is one of the missed the biggest missed opportunities in the agency market in terms of marketing every all agencies are looking for a way to get leads consistently i would never say any lead generation method doesn't work it, it all works everything you've ever heard of works if you do it long enough and and you study it well enough and you analyze it well mm-hmm. enough but i think ads and funnels which is something that we we give to our guys in in launchpad i think it's a, a massive missed opportunity 
for agencies at the moment, mainly because most of them are running ads for their clients. It's not like we need to teach these guys how to set up a, business, a Facebook business manager account, right? Like yeah. they're, they're native in that. Then it's just the strategy um, and the targeting. And honestly, it's so, so possible. So I think we're going to see this change a lot in, in the future. Not so sure about Google. I think like you said earlier in the conversation, that's probably a better local strategy. But um, mm-hmm. when it comes to agencies lead generation, I think advertising and funnels is really a missed opportunity right now. Mm-hmm. That That's interesting. I, I remember trying funnels at one point about, I think, two years ago, and it wasn't very successful, or maybe three years. I think it was three years ago. And it wasn't very successful at that point. For myself as an agency owner, the most successful channel has always been relationships, you know, going from business owner to business owner, by far the most successful one. And I think that agency owners, especially online, you know, they have this tendency to think of wanting to build some kind of machine that's going to get them clients. And not they don't think enough about building relationships and using the clients and the goodwill that they have already built. Hundred percent. The refer look, referrals are absolutely incredible. I, I think if you can, there are some people, really interesting people, who are talking about building referral systems. Uh, so mm-hmm. make it trying to trying to get referrals uh, automated because the problem that you have. Well, there, you, there we go. Trying to automate things again, Tudor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the problem with referrals is you can't control the quality or the quantity. So as much as they are amazing, they come with loads of trust brought, uh, like built in. They're very easy to convert, generally speaking, easier anyway. And, and yeah, they just feel good because they come with lots of trust. The problem is you can't control when they come and how good they are. So yes, that's got to be a part of it. In my world, it can't be your only part. It can't be 100% of your lead generation mm-hmm. because you leave yourself a bit vulnerable. And I don't know about you, but what I've definitely seen in my life is that when you are absolutely rolling in, when you can't take any more work, when you're stacked, that's when the referrals are just rolling in, right? <laughs> and then when you're yeah, like, I when, know what you mean. When you're thinking, oh God, I don't know, it, August is coming up. I've got nothing in August, like zero. Where's the referrals at? And they're just, they're not there, right? So yeah, yeah. It's kind of, um, I have a love hate relationship with them. Mm -hmm. The other very valuable thing is past clients, right? So, I mean, everybody, I think, should collect a list of past clients and keep in touch with them. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been able to reactivate a client that I've worked with before just by following up with them. And I think that that's another missed opportunity to basically get more work just keeping up with people. Yeah, you know what? That is such a good point. And I had this, uh, I have this uh, long-term mentor of mine. His name's Patrick. Um, he had this great idea. We never did it. Uh, he used to be one of my bosses in my old agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, his idea was um, we hold parties with, you know, certain guest lists of, of clients and we'd have like external speakers and it would just be a nice little party, dinner party. But the catch was the only people that could come were lapsed clients, were old clients. Mm-hmm. And I just thought such a good idea would be such a great way to get all of these people together that we had worked with before, um, just in a room. And like you say, it'd be so easy to rekindle that relationship because exactly one of the hardest things to do is to start a brand new relationship with a client. That's really hard. There's loads of weird trust issues going on. You've Absolutely. got to get put into their system. Yeah, that's tough. So it kind of you kind of get a new client without all the hassle in that situation. Mm -hmm. About that, there's actually this awesome book for sales. Uh, It's called The Ultimate Sales Machine. I don't know if you read it by Chet Holmes. 
he came out with a Dream 100 strategy. You probably heard about that. Oh, yeah. And also, um, he basically talks about how you can reactivate your clients. And he gives a lot of ways, you know, sending gifts, this and that. And I find that you, you don't often think about these things. You know, there are simple things that you can do, but they really do make a big difference. And it's sort of hard to wrap your mind around that at first, you know, and you try to do all the cool and fancy stuff and you forget about the simple stuff that's actually giving results. Yeah, 100%. If you can do the stuff that probably 99% of other people are not doing, you're going to win most times. So like mm-hmm. sending gifts at random times to random people who you probably don't consider deserve gifts. Yeah, that's going to be a great strategy, right? Surprising mm-hmm. people and having like a nice, um, a nice personal connection with people. Like, yeah, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff's missing today. Yeah, I see. I also have another question. We talked about um, looking at competitors and how people should start from who more often than from what and how. And you mentioned that this was a really big problem that you see in people. In terms of the business owners that I work with, I see, I also see a big problem in mindset. And I mean specifically about how they see themselves, you know, whether they see themselves as successful, whether they see themselves, because a lot of these people, they know what they should be doing, but for some reason they're not doing it. You know, they're procrastinating or they're afraid to take action or whatever it is. Do you have any advice with regards to that for people? Advice on how to get a stronger mindset to get things done. And, and yeah, actually- exactly. So get a more positive mindset so that they can actually take action. Yeah, well, here's the thing. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Like you have to do lots of things. I'm not sure if we talked about this before. I, I remember talking about this before and people talk about pushing themselves out of their comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think this, the, what that means has been lost uh, for a lot of people. Because I think what a lot of people think pushing themselves out of their comfort zone is, is they're just doing stuff they don't want to do. And frankly, mm-hmm. that is doing stuff you don't want to do is not going to be enough to really win at when you're starting a business. Now, in my definition of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is, doing stuff that you're, you're not really sure you can do, right? But doing it anyway. So mm-hmm. a great example is like reaching out to lots and lots of bigger clients that you might have thought, oh, can we deliver for them? And just trying it to see what happens because unless you try, it won't happen. Exactly. One of the big tricks, and there's, and there's plenty, like I, I study a lot of mindset. One of the big tricks that I teach people is you have to focus on the outcome and not the activity. Mm-hmm. You have to keep your eyes on the outcome and not the activity. And if you think about there's two sides of you, one of you is saying, I cannot wait until we hit 10K a month. I cannot wait. It's going to be so amazing. They Mm -hmm. do that, right? That person is going to bend over backwards to make that happen because they're focusing on the outcome. If you focus on, if it's the other person who's focusing on the activity saying, I really can't be bothered to reach out and send 20 Loom videos to to 20 prospects today. Like I'm not feeling up to it. I'll just push it to tomorrow. That person is completely lost sight of the outcome and is completely focused on the activity. So mm-hmm. here's the thing. Be very, very, very focused on the outcome. And in order to do that, you need to be so, so clear and specific on what outcome you want and why you want it. So if your suggested outcome that you're going for is, I just want to grow an agency. It's like, well, okay, you might grow your agency to 700 quid a month and you've still grown an agency. Is that what you wanted? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? So. You need to be unbelievably specific in what you want. Like, I want to grow 
a £15,000 a month agency with a 60% profit margin. I want to have three people working for me and one virtual assistant and I want an office in Shoreditch. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, that's going to happen because you have such a specific goal. You know exactly where you're going. And if you focus on that rather than the activities you need to get there, you're much more likely to get there. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this mindset thing at first, and especially if you don't have experience as an entrepreneur, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. But in my experience with business owners, at least, this is this tends to be the critical factor. There is some psychological reason there why their their business isn't growing faster and it's not at a different level. And I think that the stuff that you mentioned, that's key. You know, focus on the outcome. You tend to attract what you focus on. And also there's this idea, there's this modern fascination with the process, which I think is mistaken because... People nowadays, they're focused just on the process, you know, hit the gym, cold call, whatever it is, right? And they lose track of the goal. And we have all these books that say that, oh, goals aren't that important. It's the process that gets you there. And yeah, but that's only half of the story because I believe that you can't design a process that's effective until you have a goal. You know, yeah. because you always measure the process by looking back at the goal and how it's actually getting you towards your goal. And that's how you refine it over time and you improve it. Basically, just focusing on the process, I think you end up being tactical and you have no strategy. And the strategy yeah. is, as you said, the goal. Yeah. You know, there was this really, there's this really smart guy. I think his name is Bill Gross, but I'm not sure. And I'm really sorry if I got that mm -hmm. wrong. But anyway, he did a, uh, he did a TED talk. He basically has, he started... I don't know, 200 plus companies. He did Whoa. this study on what is the, the one big thing? What's the one factor? If we can focus on one factor that's going to make a business successful, what is it, right? He, mm -hmm. ran, he ran things through like team, idea, quality, all this other stuff. Yeah. The one factor that was head and shoulders above the others when it came to the success, the, the influencing the success of a business was the timing the business was launched, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Was the market ready to receive that business? Okay, great mm -hmm. example was Airbnb came at a time, I think it was just post-recession. So people wanted extra cash. Also at the same time, people weren't prepared to stay in hotels at the time, so they wanted a cheap alternative. That's kind of mm -hmm. how it works. People were renting out rooms, et cetera. There's a similar sort of situation with Uber. Um, timing is crucial, right? So here's the and thing. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Facebook, all of these things. Timing's crucial. So let me be clear. Right now is an incredible time to set up an agency. It is incredible time to set up an agency. Timing is perfect. So if we take Bill Gross's point saying that timing is the most important factor, right now, if you're starting a digital agency, it's perfect. Now, there's another factor after that, which I think is the only other important factor. And that is the amount of actions that that business owner takes each day. Mm -hmm. The amount of actions they take, and I, I'm all for working smarter. I don't work particularly hard. I don't think I work more than like a 50 hour week personally, but the amount of actions you make in a day are going to be directly proportional to how much progress you make and how fast you grow. Because you, the more stuff you do, the more stuff you'll fail at, the more things you will learn, and the more you can pivot and make changes and make new strategies and new ideas. If you are slow and if you are too contemplating and if you are thinking too much and not doing enough, that's going to really damage your chances because I guarantee you there are agencies everywhere right now starting up and they're trying everything. 
They're really hungry. So believe me, the timing is perfect. That's taken care of. But the amount of action you do is directly proportional to how fast you'll grow. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome advice. I mean, if you can find the link for the TED Talk, that would be great because, I mean, I can put it in the, the links for the show notes. And I think that our listeners would be very, very interested in that for sure. I mean, there's there's quite a few things here. I agree with most of what you said. However, I will say that the action has to be smart because I've also seen business owners who take a lot of action and they do a lot of stuff, but they take the wrong action. And the reason why they take the wrong action is to run away from the right action. You know, there's some reason why they don't want to do that thing. So they keep doing other stuff instead, but they keep themselves busy. And I think that this can be a big problem. So, I mean, this takes us back to the psychology of it being at the center of things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So you're saying that people are going to keep hammering away at one thing, not because they think it's going to work, but because they really don't fancy doing that other thing which they know they should do, yeah? Exactly. So, I mean, if you think about people who idea hop, for example, they go oh, from yeah. one idea to the to another, or agency owners who go from one channel to another, they do a little bit of work in one channel, right? And it doesn't work. And instead of doing the stuff that's hard psychologically, because you need to face your failure, you need to learn from it and so on, they prefer to jump to a different channel and start from the scratch again. Mm-hmm. And they're actually taking action, right? But they're moving away from taking any action that's actually meaningful. Yeah. I, look, I couldn't have put it better myself, to be honest. It's a really good point. You know, you've got to give something. Nothing works instantly. And if it does, it's probably going to stop working just as quickly. I mean, exactly. you've got to work really hard at this stuff and you've got to really be consistent. You've got to be, I think something that's very underrated is objectivity. And I think you have to learn to be very objective to your own failures. So mm-hmm. you have to really suck at something. Say, say you work really hard and you manage to get a lead and then the lead agrees to get on a course, your first ever, and you're so excited mm-hmm. And you got your sales script ready and it's all good. And then the sales script, the sales meeting goes completely pear-shaped. It goes, it's absolutely awful. Now, everything in your body, everything in your mind is telling you to tell yourself to give up and you're a failure, right? You worked so hard, you got that one meeting and you failed, right? Mm-hmm. Objectivity would let you do this. It would let you say to yourself, wow, that was really interesting. That meeting went absolutely terribly. I wonder why that was. Let's go through it second by second, sentence by sentence, and see where I messed up. That'll be interesting. And when you can take that level of objectivity to every single one of your failures, honestly, that will really, really help you. Um, Mm -hmm. That will really help you to improve. It'll really help you to stay consistent. One of the reasons, like you say, that we don't, we're not consistent is because we, we kid ourselves that we're a failure. We're all failures, Mm -hmm. man. We are all Mm -hmm. absolute failures at everything until we work at it. So yeah, I, I completely take your point. I think it's a great, I think consistency and objectivity are lacking in a lot of cases. A hundred percent. So, I mean, how do you actually go about being objective? I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. I don't know, you know, because one of the things I was told, I think this is a great piece of advice, by the way. One, one of my mentors said, look, if you find something easy, probably means you're pretty good at it. So first thing to say is if someone's out there and you find something really easy, Think about what those things are because they're probably your natural talents and you should probably double down on them. Follow them, yeah. Yeah, but um, I mean, I never found it hard post like being like 22 or 23 years old. I think I was probably very precious up until that point. Then I entered the world of work and 
got my ass kicked like every day and basically realized that there's no point in being precious. There's no point. It doesn't serve you in any way. Being defensive and precious about yourself and, and fragile, there's just mm -hmm. not enough time. There's mm -hmm. just not enough time in the day. That makes complete sense. And I think that it is indeed a thing that you sort of have to, to grow into it. I mean, you don't get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, without going through this process, right, of facing your failures and so on. So I think that definitely taking action on things in this regard is, is one of the keys. Otherwise, it's very, very difficult. I've also found something else which is helpful, which oh, yeah. you sort of mentioned before, which is basically being very clear and specific about your why. You know, So if you know why you're doing something, yeah. I found that that creates motivation and it creates desire, which can push you through fear and through whatever else is there. You know, it's sort of like when you're very in love with someone, you can do anything for them, right? <laughs> it's sort of a, a similar thing here. So I think if you, your why is really clear and you clarify that, then you have a lot more energy that you can use in the process. Yeah, for sure. You become resilient. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you know exactly why you're doing it, you're like, well, you know, all of this suffering is, is absolutely in proportion with the amazingness that I'm going to achieve. There's mm -hmm. a guy, um, I'm sure you know, David Goggins. Mm -hmm. Like, yep. he, I'm kind of a bit obsessed with him because I need some of him. Like every day I need some of that just mm -hmm. relentlessness. He's probably a bit too far on the sort of all out suffering to gain yeah. the train side. I agree. <laughs> for most people, he probably is. And I think for me in general, he is, but like a little bit once a day, like a couple minutes of Goggins <laughs> every day. I'm like, and I'm like, I'm back in action, right? So I think I kind of like that. I, it's too much for me all the time, but I, I think if you're struggling, just whack on a bit of David Goggins and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. back into action, man. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that um, having good role models is for sure part yeah. of the journey as an entrepreneur and more specifically here as an agency owner. And I mean, this brings us back to uh, Launchpad Academy, what you do now. So we talked about a little bit so far of what you did until you launched Launchpad Academy and why you did it. So let's go a bit more into how you actually grew Launchpad Academy to 50 plus members. And after we discuss a bit about this, we will also go into what your plans for the future are. Mm. Yeah, so... Um I had no idea what I was doing. I, I knew I wanted to be a coach and, but didn't really know. Co coaching is very, there's a, the coaching industry is very sort of open with how it teaches others to do it. So a lot of people go into coaching, they think, right, I'll do some one-to-one -one coaching. Now that's great. Very, very unscalable. Uh, and actually, mm -hmm. frankly, quite monotonous because if you're going to be doing the coaching all the time to, the, to different people, but it's the same stuff, it can get a bit um, monotonous. So I started learning from a, a guy called Taki Moore, who's an absolutely incredible person. And he basically taught us all the process of moving from a one-to-one -one coach to being a one-to-many coach, basically mm -hmm. how to build a group coaching program. And I became obsessed with this idea. I became absolutely obsessed with it. And all the way, all the back end of last year, it was just a mad rush to get this, this amazing sort of group coaching membership type deal going on which we got to, like we got it, you know, what I, what I would call now Launchpad 1.0 was launched mm -hmm. in December, 
in December, mm-hmm. whatever last year was, 2020, of course. Yeah. And um, it's come so far from there now. I, I basically scrapped for the first members. We did loads of LinkedIn outreach. We actually developed an approach on LinkedIn, which was using Loom videos. And I noticed, I think I sent you one, Tudor. Mm-hmm, that's I true. I sent you one, Tudor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, he didn't join, by the way, guys. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we had developed this approach, which I think was pretty cool. Uh, I've noticed now a lot of people are doing this. And what was great about that was that allowed me to, it allowed me a couple of things. It meant I spoke to loads and loads of agency owners. It meant that my LinkedIn account was filled with loads and loads of agency owners. And it, frankly, it just meant that the people who onboarded with me basically knew me uh, from the word go. So they knew, and they knew me pretty well because we'd been through a couple of sort of sales meetings. We'd spoken on LinkedIn a lot. Um, they were consuming my content. So it meant that the first sort of like 10 to 15 members, they were really comfortable with me and they really were my dream clients, right? My dream mm-hmm. members. Since then, we've done loads of stuff. Like we run lots of ads now. We have people from all over the world and we scaled through more a more sort of automated and, and advertising-based approach. When people come in through advertising, they don't know you as well. It's not as close a bond. So it takes a longer time to get them into the system, to get them into our way of working. But because we spent that first few months just working with our absolute dream clients, like I can't emphasize these, these people, they were absolutely perfect. A lot of them are still in the, in the program. And that allowed us to set this amazing culture, this beautiful culture in the live calls we have. The vibe is so, so cool. And people help each other out. So I think that was really key to the success was having a very highly personalized outreach based approach for the first, uh, you know, 15 to 20 members and then scaling from there. That's really been part of the key to the success of, of what we got so far. And I mean, it sounds like you also went, went for an approach which involves quite a bit of nurturing, mm. right? I mean, I, I, these 10, 15 members, it took you quite a bit of time to get them initially, because I mean, obviously you're having conversations on LinkedIn, connecting with people, and then obviously sharing your content. But how long did it take to actually reach those 10, 15 members? Oh, about a month, a month and a half. I would say oh, really? I mean, that's the, fast. the start of this year, uh, I was pretty relentless and, and I'm really pleased I was because it means that when people are telling me that lead gen's hard and the outreach is hard and that, you know, it needs to work hard, I can say, well, you know, I sent 25 looms a day for about six weeks and, and I got lots of nice clients out of it. So you nice. can, I think, yeah, I was pretty relentless, man, to be honest. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, that's good. <laughs> but it was a great, it was a great start to the year. Uh, it's what needed to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for the first, for Launchpad, basically version 1.0, how are you getting the clients back then? Oh, um, LinkedIn outreach as well, much less personalized, much more higher volume. Honestly, even year, one year ago, LinkedIn outreach, it was kind of a free-for-all. Like anyone could do it. You could just sign up to any of the automation softwares out there. You could make these wonderful lists on Sales Navigator and you could just go ping and you'd probably get some yep. bites, right? So yep. that's all changed. Obviously, LinkedIn is probably what, in, what, in my mind, done the right thing and restricted quite heavily what you can do. So that's how, that's just how I did that. It was very sort of uh, one-dimensional um, LinkedIn outreach to begin with. Mm-hmm. And did you already have your um, your methodology, so to speak, about coaching these guys prepared? 
Or was it more like you said, the framework for it, like having weekly live calls? And I mean, you can free, feel free to tell us a bit more about the framework, how it works, how things happen in your group today, so that people can both understand the value and they can see the thinking and the process that went behind in actually creating it. Yeah, of course. So, so Launchpad 1.0 was, was a 10-week program, basically. It was um, 10 weeks uh, taking you from despite defining your niche, understanding your target, packaging your offer, lead generation, sales, and then scaling. Okay, that mm-hmm. It was 10 weeks, and I kind of thought that was going to be it. But within, I think, two months of that happening live, we wanted to change it. And the reason why is because we realized that people need bespoke service. So what we built, uh, and we built a completely new program, which is this uh, 2.0, this membership thing, which is much more bespoke. Every one of our members has a one-to-one meeting with either me or one of the trainers every two weeks. In between those two weeks, they get sent into the members area. We call it the vault. And we have a 12 months worth of curriculum. So each month they have a new thing to look at. The first month will be foundation. So niche, target, offer pricing. Second month will be sales process. Third month will be a type of outreach. Fourth month will be something else. And we're always building. On top of that, what we do now is uh, we keep adding more and more things. So Every Tuesday, we have live sessions, group coaching calls, which is really cool, us teaching new things. Yep. We had some leadership stuff last time. We had some mindset stuff um, the week before. And then we also do drop-in Q&A sessions with all the group on Wednesdays as well. So mm. there's so much contact with um, with everyone. It creates this wonderful community. And really what what's nice is that a lot of agencies have different goals, right? Some agencies want to be just done for you. What we're seeing now is a lot of agencies want to do a bit of done for you, but they also want to do a bit of training. Well, we can definitely help them there as well because we are agency owners that have training businesses. So Mm -hmm. we can take them on these one-to-one sides, we can take them on a different path and we can help them build their training programs and stuff like that. So what I think is really nice and why I feel very comfortable with having as many competitors as we do is most of the other programs out there are either doing uh, one-to-one stuff, which is okay, but you don't get any of the community value, or they have all the community value, but they don't have the bespoke one-to-one element of it as well. And we, we found a way to do both, which makes it work for us. And um, I just think for now, that's a really good amount of value we can give. That sounds awesome. I mean, you mentioned that something made you realize that people after Launchpad 1.0, after the 10-week program, something made you realize that people need a bespoke service for this. So what exactly was that? Well, probably because everyone's different and um, everyone takes things slightly differently. There's a few different reasons. That's the main thing is that everyone's different. Everyone needs their own sort of pace and their own sort of path. The other thing Mm -hmm. is that if you think about the service that agencies give to their clients, we're generally speaking really good client care people. We're really good at looking after our clients. We're really good at listening to them. We're really good at giving them a very bespoke service. So I kind of want to mirror that. And I want them to Mm -hmm. feel like they are in this amazing world. So one of the things we, we also teach our members how to onboard their clients, how to deliver for their clients and how to sort of deliver. So they turn them into fans. We talk about turning clients into fans. Mm -hmm. Now, a big part of that is making your client 
when they buy something from you for the first time, making them feel like they've just joined this incredibly exclusive club that's a secret, the best kept secret in the world and has got loads and loads of special value in it. And we mm-hmm. take the same approach. We want to make our clients feel exactly the same. And yeah, you've got to have a bespoke one-to-one part of that to deliver that, I think. I see. That definitely makes sense. I heard that you also mentioned that some of the one-to-one meetings at the moment, they happen with trainers. So can you explain a bit about the process, how you actually built that side of the business? Like, did you hire trainers from the beginning? Are these people your partners or how is it organized? And how did you land on that framework? Well, scalability is the reason why, because uh, if I'm doing all one-to-ones, we're going to have it. We're going to hit a, a cap very, very soon. Yeah, not, if not absolutely. So, um, scalability is the reason why, why it has to happen. So then fortunately I've got some, uh, really talented team members. Radu, my business partner is one of them. He takes a number of these one-to-ones as well. And we have other people and we're in the process of building our training side. So that involves finding a very, very special person to come in as our head of training and then just giving them whatever they need to build the training side of the business. So we've got really top quality coaches to come in because the way I see these things is whenever I've outsourced a part of the business, I've wanted it to improve in the process. So we outsourced Mm -hmm. marketing, marketing improved no end. We've outsourced our membership engagement. That's gone up in spades. We're outsourcing our sales now. I'm hoping conversions will go up. And when we outsource the training, I'm hoping the training quality goes up as well. So nice, nice. It's really, really important. If we're going to take a hit on our margin, we need to be investing that that extra margin into improving the offering. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Absolutely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people don't think about this. You know, namely when they outsource, they just want to free up time and they sort of expect that they will get a bit lower quality in it. And I think that that's the wrong mindset to have. Like you set up for yourself for failure if you do that, for actually getting the lower quality. I'm I'm looking forward to having a bit more time, a bit more headspace. I'm sure, you know, you're the same, right? That that, Mm -hmm. that ability to sit and think and, and have a clear head is limited these days. So I'm looking forward to having more of that, but it's got to improve the offer. Otherwise we'll die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like otherwise we'll die. The, the market is so fierce, man. We got to we got to keep improving. Otherwise we'll die. Absolutely no. I I definitely agree with you on that. By the way, I meant to ask you: Is your partner Radu? Is he Romanian? Because his name <laughs> sounds Romanian. He is, and weirdly, yeah, he's uh, he is Romanian, and weirdly, uh, we have a big following in Romania. Uh, we got a quite oh, a few nice. Romanian members. So um, yeah, man, I had nothing to do with Romania just like a year ago now. I feel like Bucharest plays a big role in my life. I see, I see. <laughs> Did you partner then with um, with Radu for Launchpad Academy 1.0 as well, or is this something that emerged over time? He was a client. Oh, uh, he was one of our first clients, yeah. Nice. And I knew I knew this guy was um, was dedicated because he actually purchased his membership or his course on Christmas Day morning. And I kind of thought about it. So this guy, if he's, if he's sitting there learning on Christmas Day morning, I know that this guy's probably someone I want around. So yeah, he was a great student. He's an agency owner. Everyone that works as part of our team has been involved in the agency at some point. And mm-hmm. um, which I think is important. Even like the member, even our head of membership, Naomi, she, she's worked in agencies uh, basically her whole career. So we keep that in the staff or in the team. But yeah, um, mm-hmm. Radu was a client. And, and frankly, if anyone's out there who's thinking about your next hire, look in your client base. 
if there's anyone in your client base that could become a good person to work for you, then that's a great move, uh, both for agencies and for and for us. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, and especially some of the previous guests that I've spoken with, actually two of them so far, and myself included, you can add three of us in total, <laughs> are kind of wary when it comes of partnerships in business. Namely that for us, they haven't really worked out. So do you have any sort of advice that you can give people when it comes to partnerships in business? I'm probably the worst person to give advice about this sort of thing because my biases lead massively towards intuition. They lead massively towards speed and efficiency. And mm -hmm. when you combine speed, efficiency and intuition into a decision-making process about your partner, you're probably going to make quite snap decisions. Now, I think I've got pretty lucky. I think Radu makes an amazing partner and, and we, and he's massively improved the business. So, but I don't, I wouldn't take advice from me because uh, generally the advice is going to be go with your gut on that one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I see. I think, I see. I think there's probably lots of good advice when it comes to like the legal side of things and, and that sort of thing to make sure that you are covered. Uh, I think that's important, but, you know, consult the right people, get legal advice to make sure that's okay. Yeah. I'm more of a non-overthinker. Non mm -hmm. Has it made any difference you sort of brought a partner on at a later stage in your business, like not from the, the get-go? I think it's works better because um, the dynamic is such that, I think one of the, one of the big, I see, obviously I work with loads of agency owners, so I've seen partner horror stories, right? Uh, mm -hmm. No, I, I think up to five plus people who I've worked with this year, agencies who I've worked with this year, started with a partner and now are going solo, yeah? So I, mm -hmm. see, I see the problems everywhere. I think one of the big problems comes when there is a perception that one partner is doing more than the other. And that mm -hmm. there is a feeling of unfairness and there is a feeling of a lack of effort, right? Mm -hmm. Now, one of the ways to combat this is to be crystal clear in who owns what and delivering massive amounts of responsibility to each person. So what not to do is to say we're both the CEO or we're both the MD and we're both head strategist and we're both head of creative. That's a terrible idea because you're constantly going to be stepping on each other's toes you're constantly going to be thinking the other person's got that when they don't. And you're constantly going to be duplicating your effort when you don't need to. So don't do that. Be very, very clear whose role is what, what their responsibilities are, and don't meddle with that side. I'll give you an example. Radu is our head of operations. He also basically is head of marketing as well. Mm -hmm. When it comes to those areas, he has more of a say than me. I won't overrule him on any of those things, even if I think it's a mistake because that's a great way to disincentivize someone. And that's a great way to start souring a good relationship. So I think you've got to divide up who does what, you've got to divide up who's responsible for what, and you've got to let that person really run that part of the business themselves. No, that makes complete sense. And I agree with what you said. I think another problem that can come up here is not sorting out the legal issues up front. Because I've heard from many people, at least, that they sort of got in business, they built something, they got some customers, and then they found each other in a disagreement over the legal stuff mm -hmm. and how the company is split up and so on. I think that can tend to become a big problem if it's not addressed from the get-go. And I think that you are right about this. The, the structure needs to be there from the very beginning. If it's not, you can run in all sorts of complications later on. So, so uh, what, what, is, um, what is your experience? Have you had fallings out? Was it similar to uh, like a lack of perceived lack of effort or things like that? 
the one that happened the, with the very first business that I opened was um, definitely along those lines. We basically had different visions. So I think that that's yeah. one thing that we didn't clarify up front, but one thing that emerged over time. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you are split 50-50 and one wants to go one way and the other wants to go the other way, then it doesn't really work out. And there was also a bit about that uh, perception of unfairness. But I would say that the biggest thing was definitely having different visions yeah. for the company and the business. I think it's a great point. Constantly checking in on the vision. So, so crucial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that has to be there from the get-go. I mean, if you don't both buy into the same vision and you don't share the same goals for the business, then it's not going to work out. Like, for example, if one of you wants to build it into a massive company and the other one wants to scale mm -hmm. it to a certain point and then sell it off, those two paths, they may not seem that different in the beginning, but the differences are going to show up, right? Because you're going to need to take different decisions when you get to those points. 100%. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because like, it's one thing jumping into a business which is doing like, you know, 6K a month and it's like, yeah, let's partner up. And then you turn around and maybe maybe the business is doing 60K a month and you're like, hold on, how much of this is mine? Like how, <laughs> how yeah, am I yeah. covered? So like, yeah, I agree. Constant checking in on the vision, constant checking in on who's responsible for what and also constant checking in on, on who actually owns what. I think that's probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I also wanted to ask you because you mentioned about the trainers and obviously hiring people, bringing people in. Do you do the hiring personally? And if so, and even if you don't, what sort of methodology does Launchpad Academy have at the moment to ensure that the quality is there, you know, when you bring somebody in as a trainer? Mm. Well, um, again, finding people who basically our, are our clients, like we're speaking to a lot of people who have been members who are also coaches and seeing if we can get stuff to work with that. Because I think, first of all, when it comes to the training side and when it comes to being a coach, there are certain things that having coaching experience will really help you with, you know, because mm -hmm. coaches are good at listening to someone and actually hearing what they're really saying. They're good at listening to someone and understanding when to ask them a question back to make them realize something or when to tell them what the point they maybe you're missing is. So uh, we're pretty clear on only getting, uh, bringing in coaches who basically are coaches, have coaching experience and perfect if they're agency owners as well, even better if they are ex-Launchpad members. And there's a couple of people who I'm pretty confident will really, will really slot in there. Mm -hmm. That sounds very good. So, I mean, if you develop them organically, obviously you, because I mean, the problem most people have is that you get somebody for an interview, right? And you only have a relatively short amount of time with them. And a lot of that, the interaction that happens there tends to be sort of scripted, right? You don't see the real person. Obviously, they want to get the job. That's why they're interviewing. And it's hard to get behind whatever that initial impression is and to see what the person is really going to be like. Because the risk is that you hire somebody and you bring them on and then three months later, you find out that they need to be replaced and somebody else needs to come in and learn all their responsibilities and so on because they just weren't the right fit for the culture. And it's not really straightforward to test for that. Obviously for you, since you, you get a lot more exposure to them, that's better. Like you get a lot more information. For yeah, myself, yeah. one of the methods that I like to use is that basically I ask 
I tell people what the worst day, you know, doing that job is going to look <laughs> like. And I watch for their reaction. <laughs> and uh, there are three reactions. <laughs> you know, there, there's the reaction that they're still super enthusiastic. Yeah, I want the job. I want to do this. And then I know that they're not a good fit because clearly they're too desperate to get the job. They will say anything mm. basically mm. to get the job. If they have the opposite reaction and they're completely un unenthusiastic, this is not for me, then it's sort of clear. But the third one is the interesting one. If they start to contemplate how they can solve those challenges and make it better, you know, those are the type of people that I've seen do much better. And I was wondering if you have some techniques like this that you, you would like to share with people. <laughs> I think that's an absolutely... Uh... I'm going to take that because I, th I really, really like that too. Like that's really, really smart. And also what I, what's quite nice about what you just said is you, you hadn't said that. It would kind of been like, yeah, I want the person who's really, really positive. But you're right. That's just someone that's just saying anything in the moment just to make sure you say, yeah, okay, you got the job. Interesting. Exactly. One, one thing, look, I've, been, I've done recruitment for a long time. We recruited in, our, in my previous big agency as well. I'm quite a big fan of live creative tests, not prepared stuff, mm -hmm. but live creative stuff. Now, I know there's lots of um, bad press around here. Apparently, you know, BrewDog had lots of bad press about using that stuff in, in their actual business and stuff. I'm not doing that. Like one of the things we used to do is we used to use um, old briefs to see what people came up with creatively. Oh, I see. I think that's quite a nice thing. I wouldn't, I, some people attempted to use live briefs and I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about that because there's going to be a conflict of interest where you might want to use an idea of someone who you're not going to choose. Yeah. And that's not very fair. But old briefs and, and things like that, I think are really, really useful. But honestly, Tudor, I don't enjoy recruitment. So what we are doing in Launchpad, this is different to what we do in World Products, but what we're doing in Launchpad is we are, basically, I have my leadership team. I have my core team basically built. And any, any extensions we need from that, unless it's a completely new sort of arm or sector, like head of training, for example, I just put it to the person who's in charge of that area to go and find support for themselves. I see. And for them to run the, the recruitment process and for them to be in charge of it. So, you know, in terms of our sales team, we're going to build it in India. In terms of our marketing team, we're building it in Romania. In terms of our client engagement team, we're building it in the UK, but that will be... Naomi. So that's more the way I want to do it. And, and that's mainly because the last thing I want is to ruin one of my team's day or life by choosing someone who they can't get on with. Mm -hmm. So I just, I want them to be in full control of it. I want them to feel empowered to go and find the right people. That's the strategy we're taking right now. Right. So, I mean, that's very interesting. So you went for this remote company building approach, which is interesting. I'm also doing something very similar. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for business owners who want to build their companies remotely, as in not have an office or anything where everybody meets that you can offer them? I'm still working it out, if I'm honest. I'm still working out. I wouldn't say we've mastered it. We move, all of us, I think, move around quite a lot. We're not sort of fixed in one place. We have one fixed team meeting every week, no more. We're constantly mm -hmm. talking on what's happened on Slack. And what it seems for now is it seems to work. So when I decided, started leading people and leading a team like, you know, six or seven years ago, I decided that the number one priority for me was going to be happiness. I wanted to create mm -hmm. happiness all the time, mainly because, and I didn't know this at the time, I now know this, mainly because back then I was absolutely obsessed with people liking me. <laughs> 
I, mm-hmm. I, I recently, I since then have done lots of personality tests and I've sort of dialed that down a little bit, but I was obsessed with people like me. So happiness was really important. And I think from happiness, it meant, how do I create that? There were three things that, that came to mind. One was recognizing good performance. That was really important. Mm-hmm. The second was giving people loads and loads of freedom to do the thing they were, the way they wanted to do it. Yeah. Well, the way they chosen to do it was probably going to blow up in their face. I had to let them do it because that's freedom. Because then there's the payoff. One time they're going to do it and it's going to be something completely new. But if you're going to do free, if you're going to still give someone freedom, you've got to give them safety as well. You've got to say, yeah, you're free to do it how you want. And if it completely messes up, it's on me. Don't worry about it. So those three things have sort of underpinned how I've led teams since then. And I think those three things work really, really well in a remote or a virtual team. Always finding people doing something right, recognizing for them for it in public spaces like WhatsApp or whatever, letting people be being very clear that people have complete freedom to do what they want to do, letting them be clear as well on top of that, that it absolutely is on them that it gets done. And, you know, telling them that if they get things wrong, that's fine. That's just part of life. And I think those three things will really serve you well. That's an awesome philosophy of doing this all you to have. So thank you for sharing that. What about you, man? How do you find the remote leadership stuff? Right. So I think that I agree with what you said. I think that the key here is that you need to hire, for me at least, you need to identify people who have the right personality to work remotely. And the reason I'm saying this is because there are people who they're not as good working remotely. Like they need a mm-hmm. lot more, let's say, interaction that's face to face and in an office environment. And that can tend to not work out very well. So that's definitely one thing, being capable to recognize the people. Another trait that's really key is that they have to be Mm self-motivated. They don't have to be self-motivated the way a business owner is self-motivated, but they have to be self-motivated in that they take responsibility for their job. They like figuring things out on their own. They don't need to be handheld. So I would say that those are the two most important things that I've realized. Other than that, yeah, you have to reward good performance, as you said. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree with that. And you have to otherwise manage people well. So with regards to the safety thing that you mentioned, yeah, I agree with that. At the same time, I still think that the responsibility aspect is important. So I think that the jobs and the whatever the job description ends up being needs to be very clear and everybody needs to know what they're responsible for. If they struggle, they need to communicate. And if these things are done, you know, things can work out well. I used to have this mindset that before, and it's very interesting that you asked me this, because before I used to have the mindset that, you know, it doesn't really work to have a remote company. You need to have people at an office. You need to supervise them, (laughs) you know, kind of the, let's call it the old style mindset about business. But I've since come to see that it's a lot more efficient to work remotely. And I've gone a lot more in this direction ever since COVID because obviously all of us had to and things are good. You know, I I like working remotely um, now and this is the plan for the future. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it's the, I think it's so much, so much healthier for people. I think, you know, something you said there, which really caught my attention is um, you want to work with people who are hungry, who are sort of self-starters, who... Yeah. And then the question is, okay, how do you spot that? And something I think you can see, you can look at what someone's done in their life and you can spot whether they're hungry and they're a self-starter because 
how much content are they posting or how much uh, mm -hmm. how many little ventures have they done how many little side hustles have they put on i'm not saying you have to have that right i'm just saying if you're looking for clues of whether someone's if you're really looking for a self starter someone who just isn't waiting for to be told what to do just does stuff look at how much other stuff they've done in their life how many other ventures they've done that's a good indicator yeah there's another one that i really like mm -hmm. and that's seeing them take initiative mm. There are some people that you just talk about a project on and you sort of tell them what they have to do and they're like, oh yeah, I will do that. And that's pretty much that. And then there are other kinds of people and you tell them what they should do and then they start asking you questions. They obviously care about it. They're a lot into the work. They want to be good. You can see that. I think you want to go for that kind of person that takes initiative and takes responsibility for things. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Mm -hmm. With regards to this remote discussion, I also wanted to ask you if you faced any legal difficulties uh, in terms of building your company remotely, because obviously you sort of straddle across multiple legislations and the UK is no longer, for example, in the EU. So how does that sort of thing work out? Yeah, you had to bring Brexit into this, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> somebody had to. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, really simple answer to that is, um, at the moment, all of our teams are, they're set up as companies themselves and we pay them as companies. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just company to company consultancy fees in a way. There's a couple of people who are a little bit different, but generally speaking, that's the way we're looking at it. Not necessarily on full-time payroll. And with that, mm -hmm. actually, well, with that is actually a really, really nice thing because one of the things you're going to have to do uh, with a virtual team is you're going to have to forget about the amount of hours someone works because you ain't going to be able to track it anymore. So if that's something yep. you care about anyway, forget about it anyway. It doesn't matter. Outcomes are much more important. But what's quite nice about that is there's, there's no control we have over it. And in, in our agreements, this is like, it's more like a business to business relationship in that respect is in, this is the service I'm going to do for you. And this is what we're going to charge you for. So I feel, I feel more comfortable that way. Probably as we grow, we're going to need to change that a little bit, but um, I'm going to seek much uh, more stringent legal advice than just me mm -hmm. doing it. I see. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. It can be a problem. I mean, the biggest problem is that things in the EU, in my opinion, are very bureaucratic especially when once it gets into the VAT stuff and so on, yeah. it tends, the, the bureaucracy only increases. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that actually helps business owners. I think that people who are based in the States generally tend to have a much easier time from this point of view. Really? Yeah, I, have, I haven't spoken to many US business owners, but certainly, look, VAT is a great point because if you're essentially paying uh, employees and you're having to add VAT on top, that feels a little bit strange. So yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. That's something that if you're going to grow in a virtual uh, international team, yeah, get get advice on that. Work out how you can um, you can work around things like VAT and things like that because that might be a problem, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, uh, it can be quite a big problem uh, depending also on the state that you're in in the EU. So that's why I basically wanted to ask you because I know that a lot of people are facing difficulties in those areas. Mm. Right, so... I also wanted to ask you one more thing, and I ask all the guests about this. So um, basically, I wanted to ask you what your top five book recommendations are when it comes to mindset, business, entrepreneurship, this side of things, because our listeners tend to be very interested in that. <laughs> 
Well, you say that and then immediately all of my book uh, book recommendations just go out the window, right? So um, I'll, I'll go with the ones I can remember that I love for now and um, we can go from there. So the first one, I think this book should be read by everyone that lives, okay? I think this book is not just a book that should be read by a few, this should be read by everyone. In fact, I think it should be compulsory at final year of school across the mm-hmm. world. And that book is Sapiens, mm-hmm. Uval Noah Harari. So the reason I think it's so important is because even in the first sort of 100 pages of that book, I'm not sure if you read, have you read it? I have read part of it. I have never finished it. Yeah, okay. So what Harari will get you to in the first, like, I don't know, 100 pages is he will very clearly get you to understand exactly who we all are, which is just animals. And it's stuff, stuff we know, right? But the way he presents mm-hmm. this argument is really important. That perspective, I think, is so important because all of the issues that we have right now are based on, you know, other levels of importance we put on life, things that are generally imaginary that don't really matter. So mm-hmm. the first one I would say would be Sapiens. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another book that I absolutely love is by Donald Miller, Story Brand, fairly recent mm-hmm. book. And that's basically just a lovely framework on yeah, how to build a brand, what makes different brands stand out. Have you read mm-hmm. Story Brand? No, not at all. I haven't even heard of it, in fact, until now. Really? Okay. Yeah. So that, I would say, Tudor, that should be on top of your list um, mm, nice. of new books, to, uh, new books to read. Third Thank book, uh, I would say, and I'm really going to kick myself after this because I'm definitely going to forget one of my favorite books and, you know, I'm going to have to... Uh, you can write to me. We will put it yeah, in the show notes. I'm going to have to write to you. So the next book, I would say, I'm, I'm a salesperson, okay? So the next three are, are pretty much sales books. So the first one is uh, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Mm-hmm. I've read that one. You have, yeah? So Chris yeah. Voss, absolute hero of a guy, ex-FBI hostage negotiator, hardcore dude, very, very calm under pressure. One of my favorite things in people is composure. One of my favorite things in people is the ability to stay calm when it's all going mental, right? And Chris Voss, I I listen to him, I read his stuff, and he's just, this is a guy who is absolutely amazingly composed and calm under pressure. He will Mm -hmm. teach you how to not sell. He does teach you how to sell, but I didn't take that from him. I didn't take that from his book. I taught how to communicate in a way where you can always keep composed, you can always keep control in the the strongest of arguments, there's always things you can do to de-escalate. What we tend to do in those situations is escalate, okay? So Mm -hmm. Chris Voss never split the difference. The fourth one is a man called Oren Claff. Now, I don't know what- Pitch anything. Pitch anything, right? my favorite. Really? Yeah, for sales. (laughs) I love it, man. Okay, so Oren Claff. What did I learn from Oren Claff? Well, I learned, in a word, I learned the power of framing. Mm -hmm. So everything has a frame. Every interaction has a frame. What do I mean by that? Well, everything we go into is framed in a context which influences the outcome of a situation. This podcast was framed with the context that both of us went into it in. It sounds like it's quite a healthy frame by the way the conversation's gone. If you have an argument with someone or a pitch goes wrong or a a Mm -hmm. discussion goes wrong, you've probably framed it really badly. So this guy in Pitch Anything teaches you about the power of framing teaches you how to not be beta trapped, which honestly is one of the reasons why most agency owners don't sell anything is because they're beta trapped. Yeah, word go. Absolutely. 
A hundred percent. So if you are, this is a great point. If you, like you said, Tudor, if you are struggling to sell, probably the best thing you should read right now is Oren Claff Pitch Anything. Is that fair? I absolutely agree. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's probably the book to read right now. Drop everything, stop listening to this and just go and read that book. <laughs> Um, and then the final book is such a geeky one. It's called uh, The Challenger Customer. I don't know. I don't the even Challenger know. Sale. No, it's actually the second one from that. It's oh. The Challenger Customer. Mm-hmm. And it's a follow on from that. I've never, written, wrote, I've never read The Challenger Sale. I only mm-hmm. read The Challenger Customer. I don't even know who it's by because it's so, it's so dense and so geeky. And so like, if you're not into sales, don't even bother. If you're mm-hmm. not fascinated by B2B sales, don't even bother. But if you are, this is like a drug, this book. Like it will just keep feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. And all of the things, if you've been in B2B sales for a while, all of the snags you've hit, all of the challenges you've had, all of the issues you've had will be just explained so so perfectly well why you had them and how to avoid them. So I would really put that up there. Challenge a customer. I think it's a great one. If you're into B2B sales, it really breaks it down. Mm-hmm. That, that's awesome. I'm pleased that you didn't actually tell me that in advance because I would have had to spent the last three weeks just thinking about what books to include. But yeah, yeah, that's my top five. Do you have any recommendations for mindset? Because a lot of people ask about that. So I was wondering if anything comes to mind. Goggins. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think David Goggins. What was, I don't know. What, I haven't read his book, right? So I don't know. But um, I think his book is called You Can't Hurt Me. Yeah. I, I don't know. I watch a lot of his stuff. I think that would be a good place to start. In terms of, I don't know about reading anything, but of course, very obviously, Tony Robbins is absolutely bang on the money when it comes to mindset as well. Honestly, I don't feed too much into it because I've never really needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. I see. So that makes absolute sense then. You mentioned Never Split the Difference. I've also read the book. The thing for me with Never Split the Difference, though, was that I feel that a lot of the negotiation style and the tactics that Chris Voss gives you, they're only effective if you have to make the deal, if the other party basically has to make a deal, some sort of deal with you. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think back to his hostage situations, the terrorists, they had to make a deal. You know, they, they could not make some sort of deal. This is why I've never really deployed many of his thing, his, uh, what he teaches in, in sales. In fact, I don't think sales should be called sales, actually. I don't think you should sell anything if you have the right targeting, whatever else. And that's a conversation mm-hmm. for another day. But what it's really useful for is high-pressure situations. If there's a mm-hmm. situation where there's tension where there doesn't need to be, could even be at home, right? If you've got a precedent situation at home where you can just feel... This- I agree about that. Yeah. So this yeah. Is, it's just good for communication sense because if someone in the room has what Chris Voss teaches you in their armory, chances are most of those interactions are going to go really smoothly. And that's mm-hmm. why I think it's important. Definitely not for um, in a sales technique. And I think it's kind of been misused for that, although he's made loads of money teaching it. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely agree with that, that last part. Uh, I found much the similar, very similar thing. So I much rather prefer Oren Clough when it comes to sales. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because... Most sales books out there, they do not teach, like apart from Oren Clough, and I discovered Oren Clough very late. You know, I discovered Oren Clough, I think about six months, maybe one year ago. Yeah. Until then, you know, I was basically thinking that all sales books on the market don't teach the most important thing. 
mm. you know, which was the aspect about social positioning frames um, and so on, which basically governs the whole rest of the sales interaction. And for me, it was a revelation, you know, seeing this on paper, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, I instantly resonated with it. Yeah, so true. Like, and, and this is another reason, going back to what we talked about at the start, in terms of like the niche you choose and stuff like that, make sure you know something about it. Make sure you're an expert in it. Because if you read what Oren Claff teaches, and, and I truly believe he's one of the best salespeople out there, I think you do too, then you will realize that you need to be completely on your game, top of your game, absolute expert in the field in order to get the results you want. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah, wing it. Absolutely. You can't wing it and be... Uh, you need to know your stuff. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I think that you can't be a great salesman, you know, if you don't know what you're selling inside yeah. and out. And if you don't know your customers inside and out. Yeah, completely agree. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, the final question here that I want to ask you before we wrap up is basically, what's the future direction for Launchpad at the moment? What are the plans and what are you thinking to get there? Well, for us, we're, we're, a tr- we're an education business, okay? So we sell transformation. We sell basically results for our clients. Now, one of the things we've learned is that there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of agencies out there that can't quite afford the academy. And does that mean we shouldn't help them? Absolutely not. So one of the things we're really working on right now is packaging a lot of our training into something which is very accessibly priced. We're talking like, you know, 20 or $30. It will obviously have none of our time in it. But making that accessible to that market that can't afford to be part of the academy simply so that we can start to create our own clients instead of find them. Because mm-hmm. if we can create that sounds very interesting. If we can create wins for our clients at a very low value, which we can deliver and we can still be profitable on, and from the back of that, they can grow their business to the point where they can join the academy, I think that's literally the definition of a win-win. So mm-hmm. that is the direction we're going in, as well as obviously being very, very clear on improving the academy offering and everything like that. That's really the main innovation we're making now. I see. That's that's awesome. You mentioned the academy pricing. So um, is that something that people can find anywhere or can you share it or is it something that's on a uh, per customer basis? Yeah, no, everyone is the same price, but we don't advertise pricing until we're in consultations with people, simply because there is a massive difference between price and value. And until you've spent time with someone working out what they really want, then no one sees the true value in something in that way. So yeah, that's something we, we talk about in private. Yeah, yeah, makes makes absolute sense. One last thing, Oli, you don't mind sharing your email, LinkedIn, website, and so on for people to see what you're doing and to contact you and to join Launchpad, right? Definitely. So yes, my, my website for sure, but I'll also put a link so people can book what we call uh, an agency growth audit into the um, straight away. So if you're an agency owner, you think, you know, that's you awesome. Our help, then you can get a 15 minute chat with one of our team to see if we can help and what your three core challenges are. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you tell people a little bit about when exactly they should consider taking this audit? Like, should I take it? Should what exactly, what position should somebody be in to take this audit? So if you find yourself asking yourself questions, if you run an agency, you're struggling to push over. We used to say we'd, we'd only take agencies under 10K. Honestly, now we've got agencies in the academy who are doing about 300K a month. So uh, we kind of scrapped that. But if you if you run an agency and you're not satisfied with the revenue level you're at, 
if you feel like you're asking yourself questions like, if only I could clone myself, I would be fine. Or if only I could get 10 more leads mm -hmm. each week, I'd be fine. Or if only I could raise my double my prices, all my problems would be over. If those are the sort of questions you're asking yourself, then you should take an audit with us. Mm -hmm. That sounds awesome. There's a lot of direction for people there. Any last comments here, Oli? No, just thank you. First of all, thank you so much for, um, for having me. What I would say is there's one thing is clear. The narrative is that agencies, markets is saturated. It's uh, completely really hard work to work out. It's really hard to make it work. Truth is maybe it is saturated, but it's a really good thing. It's really good timing to be here. If you consistently work at it and if you find you're very clear on your target market, this is a wonderful industry to be in. Yeah, keep pushing. Thank you very much then, Oli. It's been wonderful having you. You've been a very interesting guest, one of the most interesting so far. So thank you very much then and wish you a lot of luck in the future with Launchpad Academy. Thanks, Tuda. Same to you. All right, Oli. Bye-bye. For the rest of you guys, stay tuned for the next episode. And until next time, keep growing your business and providing massive value to the world. Remember, you are the reason why we're all growing richer, our freedoms are expanding, and we're all living in greater prosperity. Thank you, and till next time.